This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. of households in Indigenous communities don't have access to high-speed internet. RBC surveyed 2,000 Indigenous youth and found they were 13% less likely than non-Indigenous youth to describe themselves as having enough digital skills to thrive. Our young people get left further and further behind and it, it, it exacerbates the issue of um, young people leaving, leaving our communities. To help prevent that, Keith Matthews says his community, Simp First Nation, paid $175,000 to install high-speed internet infrastructure. It was probably the best investment we made. Canada's strategy to ensure that everyone from coast to coast to coast has access to affordable high-speed internet services is widely viewed as a failure. As has been the subject of several previous podcasts, the issue is the source of ongoing frustration for many, particularly those in rural, remote, and Indigenous communities. Those communities often face the prospect of no broadband access or, at best, expensive, unreliable services. The Council of Canadian Academies recently convened an expert panel on high-throughput networks for rural and remote communities in Canada. The panel's report is a must-read for anyone concerned with equitable and affordable internet access and the consequences of leaving many communities, particularly Indigenous communities, behind. The panel was chaired by Karen Barnes, the former president of UConn University, and included Professor Catherine Middleton, the director of the Ted Rogers School of Information Technology Management at Ryerson University. They both joined me this week on the podcast to discuss the panel, its report, and the recommendations for policy action. Uh, Karen and Catherine, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. I I wanted to start with some background information for those that that aren't familiar with uh, CCA. Uh, Karen, can you tell us uh, a little bit about what it is and how it came to examine connectivity issues in rural and remote communities in Canada? Sure. Um, the Canadian Council or the Council of Canadian Academies is a nonprofit organization that uh, uses expert assessments to inform public policy. And they do that by assembling experts from across a wide variety of uh, disciplines so that they look at questions from a very holistic uh, point of view and then come forward with some hopefully really leading edge current. Uh, information that would inform new policy. So the National Research Council of Canada uh, is undergoing um, a project around connectivity as uh, directed by the federal government to connect Canada at fairly equitable speeds and reliability across this country. And we all know that that has not really worked in the past and they recognize that it's not a question that will be answered solely by technology and that there are many issues that are preventing this from happening. And they wanted the CCA to look at those issues. And so they brought together a panel of people from a number of different areas, all looking at the impacts of um, the regulatory bodies, the economic situation, the social policies and public policies, as well as ethical issues that are related to why connectivity is not equal across Canada and what was 
one of their real priorities was to look at the issues of rural and remote connectivity and why there is such a diversity of, of issues around that and what are the challenges facing um, the people bringing the technology uh, in making that happen. Okay, so interesting how there's links there with uh, the National Research Council and the government itself. I, of course, want to get into the substance of the report, but before we do that, you were the chair. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about the process? Uh, who, was, who was involved and, and how, do, how do you undertake work when you're actively engaged in looking at an issue that involves rural and remote communities? So we um, met as a panel, of course, uh, all virtually because of the pandemic. So we um, normally it's done face to face, but in this instance, it was done um, digitally, which allowed the panel from to meet, uh, I think, more frequently because we could meet, uh, you know, from our homes, which is what, where we did most of the time. And uh, we met to look at the charge. We met with the National Research Council and went through the charge. And then we um, identified where we needed more expertise uh, in addition to the panel's expertise. The panel uh, was made up of people from um, different parts of Canada as well. I was there as the chair. I live in, in a Northern Territory. And we had as well two Indigenous participants who are both involved in um, broadband and uh, uh, running ISPs, but they also were able to bring a perspective of living in remote areas of Canada. We had social sciences as well as engineers. So it was quite a diverse group. And then we identified where we needed more information and we brought in experts from various areas. So we brought people from rural parts of Manitoba, for example, looking at how they deliver um, economic opportunity and education. We uh, talked to some of the big telecoms. We talked to some experts on the satellite side. So we, we brought in uh, information where we felt we had gaps. And then we put together the report by identifying what our priorities were. We really wanted to focus on the systemic issues. We felt that that was a really important piece that had not been brought forward strongly enough and really needed to be emphasized in this report. And so um, we did that. And I'm sure we're going to talk about some of those findings. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. So we'll, we'll get into the substance for sure. You know, listeners to this podcast certainly have some appreciation for the importance of internet access. I've touched on it on, on several episodes, but the, the concerns and the issues around particularly rural, remote, and Indigenous communities, uh, I, I think we've had some discussion on it, but it doesn't get enough attention. That's why I think this report is so important. Catherine, can you talk a little bit about what the state of broadband access is today in those communities? Yes. So I'll start by adding to what Karen had said about the process, which we did do all our work online. And we frequently on our calls had <laughs> participants who didn't have sufficient connectivity. So uh, calls dropped out, people were suffering overage charges to turn their video on. Uh, so that's the reality that, that we're dealing with. But in terms of the access, the, the answer to the question about access today, we don't know what the state of broadband access is today because the latest data that's available, which is the data that was in the report is from 2019. So I'll, I'll walk through what the, the access uh, was like in 2019. Uh, so in the report, we note uh, 
using CRTC data that almost all urban households, so 98.6% of urban households had access to one or more broadband services meeting the government's target, which is 50 megabits per second download and 10 megabits per second upload with an unlimited data option. So almost universally available to urban Canada. But when you get into rural households, only 46% of households, rural households, and only 35% of households on First Nations reserves could get a broadband service that meets this target. Um, we also noted that in 2019, there was no 5010 service available to households in Nunavut. In fact, there weren't uh, services at 25 megabits per second were not even available. And in the Northwest Territories and Yukon, uh, houses that did have access to 5010 service didn't have an option for unlimited data. So we can assume that some progress has been made since 2019, but the key finding was that households in rural, remote and indigenous communities have fewer choices of broadband providers and have more expensive and slower service than is available to urban households. I am. And we note that these inequities, the differences between urban and non-urban uh, have existed for years and will continue to exist. Yeah, I mean, that's that's, that's pretty astonishing for for many people who I suspect are listening or accessing this through, through either wireless or through a broadband network and something that uh, for many that live in larger cities or urban areas, they take for granted. But to hear that it's practically one in three, only one in three people in Indigenous communities with with that, some of that kind of access is, is rather astonishing, I think, and of course, deeply troubling. You, you mentioned the speeds just now and, and the lack of availability of speeds, but the report makes the point that it's more than just an issue of speed. You know, Catherine, what else should do you think we should be paying attention to? So before we leave speed, I think it's important to recognize that speed isn't just the download speed, which often gets the focus of the attention. But one of the things the pandemic has shown us is how important it is to have the upload speed. So the connectivity out of our house, which for example, allows us to participate fully uh, in video conferencing. Uh, the other thing that we saw with speed is that a connectivity target that's okay in theory gets stress tested when you have a household full of kids doing online learning, uh, parents working from home, multiple video conferences. So the speed isn't everything, I am, but the speed is, is still really important. But other things that we should be paying attention to, I am, we do need to look at affordability. So one of the things that our report documents, and it's being well examined elsewhere, is that uh, non-urban households tend to have fewer choices of providers, meaning there's less price competition. I am also in locations with no option for unlimited data, the cost of going over a monthly data allowance can be very high, uh, meaning that households may be forced to limit their internet use to contain the costs. Another issue, we see this particularly in the remote communities, is reliability. Uh, so in instances where there's no redundancy, if the satellite goes down or if fiber is cut to the community, the community essentially comes to a standstill. So uh, we, we provided some examples of communities where with no internet access, uh, people can't pay for gas uh, because the payment systems have shut down. They can't get access to emergency services and they can't do any of the other things, the, the communication uh, and, and so on. So reliability and affordability 
in addition to speed are really important issues. Could I just add one more thing I think is, and it's, it comes up later when we talk about the policy, but capacity and adoption, you know, go together in rural and remote Canada. There is in many areas an issue of capacity in two ways. One is there has been no real um, good internet. So people aren't necessarily choosing to have it. You know, there's lots of homes in the north that have, have don't have it for reasons of not having the affordability or being able to afford the hardware and the, the connectivity, but also just not having a need for it or seeing a need for it yet. The other is capacity on the um, maintenance side. So there are many communities in rural Canada, particularly in the north, where if your internet goes down or if your computer doesn't work, there is no way to fix it. There's no one there with the ability to fix it. And so there is those small issues that are very unique to certain parts of Canada that we need to be looking at, I think. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I want to continue along those lines, actually talking a bit about the effects that, that we see from this. I mean, I think you've already highlighted both of you a little bit of that, you know, quite literally the communities almost coming to a standstill and kind of everyday activities when, when the internet goes down. Can you talk a bit more about what some of these real world effects are uh, in communities when we're talking, whether it's about the, the, the price related issues, the reliability of the networks or the speed? Yeah, the, um, I think we saw it come to a head with the pandemic. Um, and I particularly, I work in education as we all do, but uh, we know that there were children that essentially had to stop doing school. So they were left out completely from education last year uh, because they had no access or there wasn't reliable access in their homes or they had to share a single computer amongst many, many kids. Um, so that was a real impact. Um, we saw uh, there's examples of um, health and safety where people can't get access to health providers or health information if they don't have access. And sometimes that's an urgent situation. Um, we see it in search and rescue. If you don't have the technology to communicate necessarily, or if that ability goes down, there may be problems with uh, first response or emergency uh, services going down. Um, even our airlines, you know, without technology, there can be no um, air traffic. And we depend entirely in the north on air traffic. So there are many real world uh, examples of how the impacts are really significant. And yeah, no, I'm glad, I'm glad you, you raised some of these issues and you, and you see it in the report. There's a, a tendency at times when we talk about these issues for those that uh, are either skeptical or, or can be at times dismissive, chalking it up to a little more than people wanting to play games or watch Netflix. And while those mm -hmm. are, I think, valued, valuable things too, I mean, and, and entertainment and, and the culture is, is critically, is important as well to, to highlight it at, at, in this way, I think uh, brings home the point that this is, this goes well beyond some of those kinds of activities into to truly everyday cr mission critical types of things. Yeah, and then I think looking future to the future, there's the whole area of economic opportunity. You know, as Catherine mentioned, upload speed is going to be critical for people to be able to bring their entrepreneurship to the world or to Canada from areas of remote Canada. Um, and that's going to take a lot more reliability and a lot more um, symmetry in order for that to happen. And it won't happen now. No, that, that, I think you're absolutely right. Catherine, you, you know, you mentioned that some of the data that you that you relied upon was dates back to 2019. I, I you know, the, the report also notes that there is gaps in the data. Is that primarily one that 
we're now a couple of years behind, or is there still quite a bit that we don't know about uh, from a from a pure evidentiary perspective of, of the current state of broadband in these communities? Yeah, so there's certainly the problem, as, as you've just framed it, of data being lagging so that it takes a couple of years before we know uh, what what was happening two years ago, which isn't that useful when you're looking at something that is very much a moving target. I, but it's also in some, some cases the way the data is framed. So when you get data on broadband availability, it tells you who does have connection, it's not who doesn't. And so there's a lot of work that's required to actually figure out where the service is not. You have to go, go look at the maps and then sort of do the, the inverse of that. But there isn't anywhere where you can easily go and pull off a, a comprehensive overview of the the unserved uh, communities. Uh, so that's that's one piece, just the, the access piece. Uh, the affordability data is also problematic. So, so Michael, you've discussed this before. I, it's a very contentious area. There are different uh, perspectives on how you measure affordability. But one of the things that we see, uh, as an example, the CRTC publishes data on advertised pricing. Well, we know that what's on a website and what people actually pay is not always the same thing. So if an advertised price drops, it doesn't necessarily mean that your contracted price is going to drop. So you get these disconnects where there's there's a, 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 a data point that says the pricing is this, but we don't actually know whether that really is what people are paying. And then even within the pricing data, I am it, it doesn't reflect what people pay for overage charges. Karen mentioned the cost of installation, the cost of repairs. So there are other costs that aren't accounted for. And we also don't really have good granular data that lets us drill down to look at the differences within provinces as an example. So you might get a provincial average price. Well, the price in Toronto is likely to be quite different than somebody in, in a very remote Northern Ontario. So no data on that. I am also, I am no specific data on pricing for indigenous communities. So we can't really look at some of the inequities there without understanding that. And maybe one other point is looking at the, the adoption side of things. So we often get the numbers and we've already talked about them about broadband being available to communities. But as Karen mentioned, just because it's available doesn't mean that individuals are actually choosing to take up that service. And we don't have a really good understanding from a, a data perspective around what are the reasons that people are not uh, taking up that service? Is it price? Uh, is it something else? So that's another, another gap in the data. That's, uh, yeah, I'm, gl I'm glad you, you raised all of those issues. I mean, there is so much discussion, especially around you know, affordability and the role that some of the large providers play. And we didn't see the government emphasize that issue quite as much as uh, we might have expected during the last election campaign, but it's sure to continue before the CRTC. And the need for more information is, is, is pretty critical. You know, we're recording this a couple of days after we had a speech from the throne uh, speech uh, laying out the government's priorities and indigenous issues were certainly um, emphasized uh, 
regularly by the government. It's clear it's, it's become a, a major priority. Uh, Karen, you already spoke a little bit about some of the access issues, but I thought it'd be worthwhile speaking specifically about the impact this has within the Indigenous communities. Absolutely. And we certainly heard this from some of the uh, panelists as well as some of the experts we heard uh, spoke to. But, you know, under the TRC, we have a, a lot of obligations uh, through reconciliation to strengthen um, culture and language, for example. We know that connectivity is playing a huge role where it is effective and working uh, to bring communities together to uh, build language uh, training, language sharing, culture sharing, um, strengthening their voice by uh, being able to connect to each other through um, technology. So that has been, we've seen that impact already. And I think it's important to recognize there are some communities now being left out of that conversation. Um, the pandemic, as I've mentioned, has already shown um, the real um, disparity in some of the communities around access to good connectivity and where there is not any competition for service, you know, it's bare minimum is what exists in many communities, if at all. And some students just don't have access and are falling farther and farther behind on an educational uh, levels across this country and particularly on reserve communities where the access is very, very poor. Um, we know that self-determination um, is really important to the success of Indigenous communities across this country. As we've seen in some of the communities where they are self-determining uh, now under new treaties. One of the things that's come up is the lack of control over spectrum licensing, for example, in other parts of the world that is an, uh, available to Indigenous communities and Indigenous um, nations. It does not exist in Canada, but it would give them control over content would give them control over it just as they have control over land and water through those treaties. Um, one of the things we wanted to emphasize in this report is that many of those communities have very strong leaders and very good entrepreneurs who would really benefit Canada if we could bring their services out to the rest of Canada and do that through technology. Um, and it's just not available right now for Canadians to know what's happening. We look at things like uh, research and climate change and the impacts are very, very significant in parts of rural Northern Canada. They need access to technology and communication that is reliable so that they can be right at the front edge of that, uh, both at the research, but also understanding what the impacts are going to be and participate in the solutions and the policies that are, we're gonna be building going forward. It's really a matter of being left out of the conversation and they need to be included to find the right solutions going forward in all of these areas, education, health, social um, services, all of those things. Yeah. Now, speaking of, of policy and the conversation around policy, uh, just to, to sort of segue into some of the broadband policy issues uh, that that the report focuses on and, and really provides some important recommendations. You know, Catherine, you've, you're one of Canada's leading experts on this. You've written extensively about broadband policy. And we've had, as you know, commitments around this issue now dating back decades. And yet the report describes the approach largely as, as a failure and pretty much kind of an incremental, incrementalist style of approach. Can you walk us through a little bit, you know, how, how you arrive at that conclusion. It's, in some ways, you're you're preaching to the converted here, but uh, for the benefit of listeners, uh, 
why has why has our broadband policy simply not left us with the kind of situation that we've just heard about? Yeah, the policy is both uh, being incremental and fragmented. So we'll talk about those two aspects uh, differently. So incrementally, as, as you said, Michael, uh, policies, efforts to improve broadband connectivity in Canada have been underway since the late 1990s. So none of this is new. I have, and what we've seen is a series of government programs, each of which is chasing a different target and the targets have increased over time. But what happens, the incremental nature here is that the program provides service to a, a particular set of communities. So it doesn't attempt to, uh, programs despite having things like universal in the names don't actually result in universal connectivity. They're, they're taking it little, little bits of country step-by-step. Chasing those targets. So for a long time, the federal funding and provincial funding was going towards networks that would provide five megabits per second download, one megabit per second upload. We know that that is no longer anywhere near uh, sufficient. Uh, we then saw some programs that went to 10-1. Uh, so a little bit better, but not much better. Now we're seeing a 50-10 target, but we know that that target is not going to be sufficient in future. So what, what you see is this continued series of small steps that we, we have to be fair to say that if, if you're in a community where you didn't have broadband before and one of these programs has brought service to your community, then that's positive. It, it's the, the initiatives have not been total failure in that there are certainly communities that are served now that were not served before. But the fragmented nature of this, as I said, so the latest federal program is called the Universal Broadband Fund. But the Universal Broadband Fund is a competitive fund. So that means that municipalities have to have the capacity to put together a compelling argument that explains why their municipality is more deserving than another municipality and somebody decides. So funding is awarded to some communities and not others, yet this fund is labeled the universal fund. So what we're missing is something that really is truly universal. What we're missing is a, an overarching plan that may have many different components and many different ways of providing service, but it acknowledges the fact that we have to move from competitive, your community competes, competes against my community and we pick the winner to some sort of situation where we can recognize all the communities that aren't served and have a systematic plan that goes out and figures out how we provide connectivity to each of those communities. Okay, that's where we need to get to. Um, let's let's expand a little bit on that in terms of given given the the past failures, the the report provides several recommendations. And, uh, I'd like for both of you to to talk a bit about you know the kind of conclusions that you arrived at in terms of how how we can solve some of these issues. So uh, I can start, but I know Catherine also will want to speak to this. Um, one of the things the panel did was rather than have specific recommendations. Um, we felt that it was important to d 
develop some fundamental principles by which all future public policy around this issue should be built. Um, and those are included in the report. Um, one of the ones that was really key, I think, for all of us and came out through much of the discussion was the need to really have place-based policy and to bring the voices of, as Catherine just said, individual communities' needs into the, to the discussion, because there is no one uh, solution. You can't paint all of Canada and say this is all this solution is going to fix it for everybody, as we well know. But how do we get that information is really critical and making it front and center that we have to talk to those communities and really listen to understand what their needs are before developing policy. But there were others as well, Catherine, I don't know if you want okay. to mention some. Yeah, so certainly the idea of future proofing. So rather than chasing a numerical target that may or may not be provide a service that can then be uh, upgraded. There really is a recognition that wherever possible, the, the technology to be deployed should be fiber. Uh, so there's an Australian politician who famously said, I do it once, do it right, and do it with fiber. I didn't work out entirely well in Australia, but, but his principle, his recognition that rather than this incremental roll it out, build out a technology and then discover five years later, it's, it's insufficient. I am really trying to focus the investments now on technologies that will be upgradable. And, and to be fair, I have many of the projects that, that are being funded by the federal government, by the provincial governments and through the CRTC are funding fiber, which is great. I have, there's, there's also, as I mentioned, the principle of universality. So we have to get beyond the competitive model of awarding funding to really figure out how do we identify all the communities that need service and how do we find ways, building on what Karen said, that work for these specific communities to get the service that they need in a way that will be sustainable, affordable, uh, reliable over the long term, and upgradable. I, and, and I think maybe one other principle that we, we need to focus on that, that Karen has also I, implied in, in much of what she said is the principle of equity, just recognizing throughout all of this that the solutions may not be identical, that it will cost more money to provide service to some areas than others, but you can't say, well, it's too expensive to provide that service. We need to recognize that broadband is an essential service. We've talked about the impacts of not having broadband. So really deeply embedding equity in all the policy decisions, I think is, is a crucial thing to do. Which I think we, we talked about in the report is taking it into out of just being an entirely private sector enterprise, you know, that there needs to be much more of a public sector voice and investment in this to make it truly equitable. Yeah, no, you know, thanks for that. Because speaking of the, the, the shift from saying this is purely private sector into one where there's a role for 
publicly owned networks or public involvement, there, there, there are references to community owned networks or, and some hybrid networks that kind of try to take a, a bit of both those, you know, we see the occasional example discussed, uh, I think in the media, and then there are those that try to shoot that down and say, no, you know, it's uh, leave it to the bells and Telluses and Rogers of the world. Um, can you, can you, you, so, but you did recommend or did talk specifically about the, the benefits of, of some of these community owned networks. Can you provide some examples of some success stories that, that might be emulated in that regard? What I'd, I'd like to do here, Michael, is, is talk about some of the principles rather than particular cases, because it isn't always easy to copy what someone else has done, but I think it's recognizing, as we've said, that, that there are unique needs in communities and that community members are particularly well positioned to understand what they do need. I, the community models can work on with different financials, uh, different rates of return, different payback periods. So when a private sector company says there's no business case for us to go into the community, if a local community is funding the network, they may be I am issuing some kind of, um, they may be financing it somehow, perhaps through community investment. I am going to banks to get that financing. They can, they can set different terms. I, they may have a 20 year payback period instead of the five year or the three year payback period that the private sector might want. I am, but to make this happen and, and you know, we've, we've mentioned a couple of examples, but there aren't as many examples as you might like in Canada. So to make this happen, one of the things that we need is more investment in capacity building. So as part of this universal rollout, providing more tools for local communities to develop the expertise that they need to really clearly define what's going to serve them best, at the same time, recognizing that that's not gonna work for everybody. So we have to acknowledge that yes, community owned, community driven hybrid networks are great, but if the community doesn't have the capacity to do that, then we shouldn't say, well, we're gonna skip your community because you can't do that, we'll move on to someone else. So we still need a balance. I am, but one of the things that we've seen recently I am, is the Center for Excellence for Next Generation Networks I am, has done a lot of work in rural and Northern Ontario, uh, in part funded uh, with some contributions from the Ontario government to build a series of templates. So they've said, let's take an example where a community is a certain distance from the internet point of presence. What kind of options are available there? Or let's take a community where the geography is such that they're in a low-lying valley and it's really hard to serve. What's an option there? So they're building out use cases that other communities could emulate. And we're also seeing uh, organizations like the Rural Ontario Municipalities Association developing guides. So the, the, the templating and the capacity building is going to help, but we also have to acknowledge that we still need solutions for communities that don't have and won't be able to develop the capacity to build their own networks. So it's not a one size fits all solution, clearly. I mean, there's a need to, no. to take these principles and then incorporate them or apply them in different communities in different ways. Uh, absolutely. And, and really enabling the communities to articulate what is going to work for them.
Okay, that makes sense. Now, uh, why don't we why don't we conclude with this? I mean, this is a conversation that, in some ways, it feels like we could have been having ten years ago, or or even more. I mean, it just it seems like the, the same issues get raised. The data points may change uh, a little bit, and and the importance of the issue I think continues to accelerate. I mean, we've seen that quite clearly in a pandemic, and hopefully soon, fully post pandemic world. Um, and it's certainly an issue that you know th- there's no government or politician who is against access. And yet we don't seem to be able to really move the ball forward in the, in the way that, you know, the report identifies we need to. Are, are, are you optimistic that we will, that, you know, now is the time given that we're coming out of, of COVID and, and, if it, and, and we've identified particularly in these, some of these communities, the importance of paying attention um, to their, their various economic and social issues. So, do you, do you see some hope here? And, and if if you still have concern, you know, what needs to be done to light a fire under some of our leaders so that this does rise up the priority list? I'd be interested in both of your views. Uh, well, I think at the end of the day, the panel felt that things were moving. I'm not sure how optimistic we felt, um, given the stories we heard from some of the parts of Canada where the disparity is still so great. Um, but as Catherine and I mentioned to each other uh, when we were speaking earlier, if we don't know now what the issues are after this pandemic, um, and if the leaders aren't paying attention, then I'm not sure what it's going to take. Um, but I think really it will take more focus on those very specific stories. It will take more focus on bringing the local voices forward, really amplifying those voices through media, through social media, through you know podcasts such as yours, amplifying the voices of the people who are not being served and underserved and making sure that those stories come to the leaders and the decision makers. Catherine, you have any, any suggestions on top of that? <laughs> Well, I, it, as we've said, this is this has been a an intractable kind of a, an issue for decades now, and and there is progress being made. Uh, in the last six months, we've seen announcements from both the Quebec and Ontario governments that they are going to take a sort of universal top-down approach. They're just going to connect everyone else that's not connected, but the devil is in the details, of course, and there's often not much transparency around these things. It's unclear whether the glossy, this is what we're going to do, promises are actually going to be delivered upon. Uh, When you look at the Universal Broadband uh, Fund page, which is the Canadian government page, as we've said, I am it says, you know, all these wonderful things, all the right words are there, we're going to get everyone connected yet the fund is closed. So what happens if you didn't get connected there? So it will be interesting to see what the federal government mandate letters say and whether the responsibility, which has been divided across different ministries, whether it gets centralized in in one ministry or not, I suspect it probably won't. Um, But I I think we, we need, as Karen said, continued local effort. We need continued effort by academics and community groups and others to keep this this issue at at the top of the agenda. But as you said, Michael, nobody's opposed to this, but we just somehow have been bumbling along and we we don't have that overall 
plan as to how we're going to ensure that every last household in every community in the country is going to get connected at the moment. So that's what we're missing and how we light a fire under politicians to make that happen, I don't know. But I think that's our end goal is, is needing that plan that is no longer, well, we're gonna have this fund and it's gonna, you have to apply here and the CRTC has this fund and then the provinces have this fund. We need a, a, a truly universal perspective on what do we need to do to first off identify those unserved households and then figure out how we can get the service to them. Yeah. So we've got data, we've still got data issues uh, in terms of fully understanding what the, the current situation is given uh, as, as you've highlighted. And we've got lots of different pieces of action, but uh, bringing it all together is, is critical. And uh, hopefully the report uh, helps move us forward in that direction. You, you clearly brought together some really great people and uh, the report itself is one that I think everybody should read, particularly those who are in the position of making some of these decisions, because I think it really does help point the way from a principle-based perspective about how we can address some of these issues. Uh, Karen and Catherine, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Michael. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.